Hey everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Disruptors Collective Podcast. My name is Barry, and in today's episode, my very first guest is Natasha Baker. Natasha is the CEO and founder of Snap EDA, a Silicon Valley company focusing on delivering technology to better streamline electronic design and automation. Her company's product is actually used by millions of engineers around the world from companies like Amazon, Google, Facebook, Adidas or Adidas, depending where you're from, Nike, Samsung and many more. In our conversation, we talk about so many things, everything from her journey to become CEO and founder for all the way from her humble beginnings as an engineer. We talk about uh, breaking mental barriers, uh, overcoming fear, women in tech, and work-life balance. I think uh, all of you will enjoy this conversation that I had with her. This conversation is something that I really wanted to showcase to everyone, not just to be inspired about technology and science, but also how to be motivated and be inspired to maybe start something for yourself and hopefully kickstart that entrepreneurial mindset. So without further ado, I really hope that you enjoy the conversation. Here we go. Okay. Hi, Natasha. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for uh, joining the the podcast. Uh, You are the inaugural guest and uh, it's uh, super amazing to have you on. Uh, And I wanted to Obviously, you know, we, what you're doing with uh, Snap, Snap EDA is, uh, is pretty cool. But, you know, I wanted to have uh, this episode really just, you know, showcase uh, the work that you're doing with Snap EDA, but also get to know a little bit about you as well. So, you know, why don't you maybe give a one-minute spiel uh, to the listeners and uh, provide a little bit of background about who you are and we can take from there. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Barry. Um, so I'm the founder and CEO of Snap EDA, uh, and Snap EDA is a search engine for electronics designers, and we help engineers to design electronics faster uh, by providing them with the blueprints that they need to bring their product ideas to life. Um, so we have over a million engineers who use our search engine each year to design their products, whether that's medical devices or smartwatches or drones or, you know, electric airplanes. It's really everything you can possibly think of. And uh, I think it's really surprising to see the types of uh, devices that people are designing today. Um, You know, everyone from Adidas to Nike to Amazon to Facebook, they're all designing hardware. So it's a really exciting space to be in. So how did you, you know, when I was looking through your website, I mean, you're doing really cool stuff, especially in terms of creating that library um, of all the components. And I guess you can call it sort of like a Google. You can search for basically effectively any component that you wish, right? So what was the problem you were trying to resolve? I mean, it's it's very easy to say, oh, this is a, a snap idea and this is what we do, which is cool. But how did you actually get to a point uh, where there was actually a problem that needed to be solved in the market? Yeah, well, I'm an electrical engineer by background, and so I had a history of designing um, electronics and working in the electronic design area. So um, really, the whole idea behind SnappyDA is the product I would have wanted if, um, if I were still designing electronics today, right? So 
that's how I came up with the ideas. I was designing electronics, I was designing a circuit board. Mm -hmm. And it was really in that moment that I experienced the pain of going through that process that I realized like, hey, someone needs to make a Google for electronics basically. Um, but the problem that we're solving is that if you're making any type of electronic device, whether it's a smartwatch or a drone, you would spend days creating the digital models for each component on your circuit board. So if you've ever taken a look at a circuit board, uh, there's all the little components on top of right. it, right? And each of those components, there's, by the way, 300 million components out there, which is absolutely nuts. That's crazy. And for each of those components, you need to have a bunch of different types of digital models to represent them on your computer. So when mm -hmm. an engineer is designing, they use uh, computer-aided design software. So in every industry they use, you know, a lot of the time these days they use the computer to design things. Right. Mm -hmm. And you need to have a digital representation to design with it, to simulate with it, to manufacture with it. Uh, and, um, and so if you can imagine that there's 300 million components, there's all these different types of digital models that engineers need. Mm -hmm. And then of course, there's so many different brands of CAD software that engineers are using. So, I mean, there's just billions of, you know, pieces of data that electrical engineers need. Um, and if they don't have that data, what happens is they spend days making it from scratch. And when they spend days or weeks or months making all of this data from scratch, what, what happens is that it takes them away from what they could be focused on doing, which is designing and innovating and inventing interesting things. Um, so the problem that we're solving is, you know, how do we take away this really tedious work that engineers need to do to represent these components digitally? How do we like get that out of their way so that they can focus on innovation? They can focus on design. And that's really the problem that we're solving. Uh, it's absolutely unbelievable that before Snapidea came along, you would have an engineer at, you know, for example, Apple and maybe an engineer at Amazon that using the same component, but duplicating the effort, both of them creating the same digital model for the same component. And if you can think about that, here we have these brilliant people, these brilliant engineers, just recreating the wheel over and over again. Now, there is a reason why sometimes that might be, might be, you know, sometimes companies have their own internal standards and things like mm -hmm. that. So sometimes there's a reason for that. But 90% of the time, um, engineers can basically um, benefit from ready-to-use digital models and content and blueprints and things like that that we provide. It's interesting you say that because, you know, I remember going through college and one of my professors, you know, it was a digital analog design course. And I remember, you know, we were given a task of building a PCB or building a digital circuit. And I used Altium and I use uh, uh, AutoCAD uh, on a few occasions as well. And you know, for me to find that footprint, it was you. It, sometimes it was easy, but sometimes because it was, I came, I guess it came pre-built with the uh, with the software. But certain certain uh, components were, were fairly esoteric, or those were that were fairly new to the market, um, like this new filter or this new um, you know MCU that I want to use. It was super difficult to find, and I had to sort of trawl through all the. Uh, I guess the the libraries online because there's different standards associated with that as well. You know, I'm surprised that nothing like this was created, um, you know, earlier because, you know, EDA has been around for such a long time for like, you know, decades. So why hasn't it taken so long to sort of uh, have this sort of library available to all of us? 
That is a great question. And it's awesome that you have used Altium before, that you've experienced this before. Right. Um, so this is when you were a student, right? That yes. you, okay. So, okay. So the EDA tools, they do come shipped with kind of like a prepackaged library. However, um, a lot of the time, you know, there's over 300 million components out there. So a lot of the time it's only a subset. And for students, that can usually be okay because they have kind of the basics, kind of the, the you know, very basic components in there, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're doing any kind of professional design, which is just so many people out there, um, a lot of the time they do need esoteric components or new components, right? And there's just so many out there. So um, that's really the motivation behind, you know, us creating <laughs> SnappyD, of course. But to your point um, about why no one has done it before, I think the biggest reason is that, uh, I think there's a couple things, right? So the problem itself is just massive. It is just absolutely massive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of EDA companies have tried to do it, um, or they've, I mean, to some extent, right? They have library right. teams and things like that. Um, however, it's not their core competency, right? So continuing to invest in that area when, you know, of course, engineers benefit from it, but if they could put that resource into something else that might be more of a sales factor, then of course, they're going to put their money into that, right? So for these EDA companies, it's always been a bit of an afterthought. And really to do it right, it it needs a big team. It needs sophisticated technology. Um, a lot of a lot of the times people think, oh, you know, um, it's just a footprint, right? But it's like the amount of detail that if you want to do it right, that, that goes into that and you want to make sure it's reliable for manufacturing and that they're vetted and that there's the breadth is, is quite large. So that's number one for the EDA companies. And, you know, with my history at, at an EDA company, I saw it firsthand, right? Like, you know, they maybe have, you know, if, if, in the in the in a good case, like maybe a dozen engineers dedicated mm -hmm. to a library at our company at the time, I think there were maybe two or three who were dedicated to it, right? So that's number one. It's it's usually an afterthought. Um, for the semiconductor companies, a lot of people think, a lot of engineers think, oh well, why aren't the semiconductor companies and the component suppliers providing this data? Uh, and the challenge that they have is a couple things. So number one, it's that there's so many different PCB CAD tools out there. Mm -hmm. And supporting all the different formats is really challenging because there's no common file format in the PCB right. design industry. Mm. And these, these tools kind of do that probably on purpose, right? Mm. Um, so that there's, uh, you know, a reason to upgrade each year um, and things like that. And since a lot of people have their IP in these file formats. Um, the other challenge that uh, outside of the PCB design formats is that, you know, creating symbols and footprints, like it does require expertise. And that's just not, again, it's not their core competency. Their core competency is creating silicon or creating like components. It's not, um, you know, understanding all of the latest standards on how this component is going to best solder onto the board. Sometimes in the case of electromechanical components like connectors, they are the experts on that. They are the experts on, right. the top, mm -hmm. on their components, right? And so they can provide things like the land pattern and the copper layout of where the component gets soldered onto the board. But then there's still things that are around electronic design that the component suppliers don't have any idea about. They don't know anything about courtyard layers. Um, mm. They don't know anything about how to set the pin directions in the tools so that the ERC checks, the electrical rule checking works properly. Getting a little bit into the weeds here, but the point is that, um, you know, they just really don't have that level of understanding of the electronic design tool itself. And so 
I actually spent a lot of time thinking about this before I started the company because I thought, you know, I don't want to start a company if, you know, the EDA tools are just going to do it or component suppliers are just going to do it. And so um, after thinking about it a little bit longer, I realized, well, you know, they're not going to fix this problem. (laughs) They haven't fixed it yet. It's been decades. Mm -hmm. And so, but, you know, I, as an engineer, know that the problem is real. I, as an engineer, know that people need this. Um, So, yeah, that's a fantastic question. And it really comes down to it not being their core competencies. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting point you mentioned is that you were directly exposed to this firsthand because you you are an engineer and you know you've been in the weeds, you know exactly what's happening and the you know the um the limitations and the opportunities that exist. And I guess you know that sort of leads me on to my next question about, you know, when you were start uh, thinking about, you know, the, the company, the idea what was the reception like from others? Um, you know, I know, I'm sure you've spoken to potential investors and current investors you have now. How did they take the idea? What was their uh, reception? And were they enthusiastic? Did they have their own, um, you know, thoughts about what uh, where you were going with this? Yeah. Uh, so when we first got started, um, because the world was so different when I first mm-hmm. started this. So um, we launched back in 2013. So in the years leading up to launching, we would be talking to so many engineers. Um, well, I would be talking to so many engineers to get their feedback. It was just me at the time. Uh, and would also be talking to, yeah, investors as well uh, in Toronto where the company started. Right. And back then the world was so different in the sense that um, the mindset that engineers had was totally different. Right. So when I talked to engineers, they would say, well, you know, I love the idea of this, but I wouldn't actually be able to use it because my company has a librarian or they'd say making libraries is part of my job. Like I wouldn't trust a third party service. Right. Mm -hmm. And these are all legitimate um, concerns. And uh, you know, but what we've seen over the past five years or so is that, well, especially in the last three years, things have totally shifted. Things have shifted so much. (laughs) uh, And we can talk about some of the reasons for that, but back when I was starting, it's def- it definitely was, this sounds cool, but I wouldn't use it. Uh, mm. And similarly from other companies, they just wouldn't get it. Well, I don't understand why we need to provide CAD models to our customers, you know, is something that suppliers would say. Right. Um, so when it came to investors, I think a response was, um, it was very similar. It was kind of like, um, I, I think that being in Toronto, there wasn't as much of like a history of um, this space. And so it was always a challenge. And, you know, at the same time, being a first time founder, I'm sure my pitch could have probably been better, like reflecting on it. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I think there was kind of this sense of like, oh, well, I invest, especially back then in like more social apps or things that are a little bit more um, trendy, you know? So I basically decided very early on, I am just going to build this. I'm just going to build this. I don't care if anyone funds it because I believe in it. And I just did whatever it took to build it, you know? And I figured you know, when we can prove this out, um, we'll be able to raise funds. And so I didn't even, I didn't even really try to pitch too many investors. Um, after a few that I talked to, uh, I decided, um, to kind of go about it kind of, I guess, from first principles perspective of like building it from scratch. I don't know if I would do the same thing over again. It's been really, uh, we could have gotten, you know, I think we could have gotten where we are much, much faster. Um, if I had taken, you know, probably, you know, worked a little bit harder at, at raising funds earlier. 
Um, but yeah, so back in 2013 is when we launched and I was part-time. So it was kind of like a side gig. Um, and then what happened was that I was working on it just part-time, uh, self-funding it. And in 2015, we applied to Y Combinator and we got accepted to Y Combinator and that was our first funding. Uh, and then from there, we got our first employee, which was myself. <laughs> and, uh, and from there, basically that's when we really started growing. So that's when we were able to really focus, start building out a team. Um, and yeah, today we have over a million engineers who use Snappy DA. So it's been a really interesting journey to basically just fight through that. Um, I think the resistance that we faced really early on that I faced in the process. Um, but you know, I think that's what makes the journey so rewarding as well. Yeah, I know that's, that's a really cool story. And, you know, I just want to sort of, uh, touch back with uh, the point you made about bootstrapping because it seems like you, that's what you effectively did. You didn't really approach any investors right off the right off out of the gate, but really sort of thought about it, um, developed it yourself. Did you have any? You know, obviously, Snap EDA is a it's a service. It's a sort of a software as a service. Did you have any coding skills? How did you, uh, or was it mostly hardware from your electrical engineering background? And and if you did have any of those skills, you know what was your your routine like? Because you said you're managing a part time, right? So I can imagine a lot of people, you know, they they go to do their day job, and they come home, and they're tired, right? So how did you motivate yourself, and how did you balance? Uh, the development of Snap EDA with, you know, whatever you were doing at that point in time? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question because, um, you know, just like you said, if you're working a day job and you want to like learn how to code, then yeah, you're going to be exhausted at the end of the day. And mm -hmm. you're totally like right on point because that's exactly what I tried doing with my full-time job. So I decided, you know, you know, basically one day I was designing a circuit board for a trade show and it was taking me this should have taken me like a few hours of time. I was just doing a super simple board and it took me days of time. And I realized someone needs to build this. And I was kind of like, okay, well, I don't have any funds. <laughs> I don't have any coding skills. Like, of course I had a very strong technical background. I went to a fantastic university that has really good engineering um, training. So theoretically and technical skills were very strong, but that's totally different than designing a web app from scratch without any knowledge of, having ever done that before yeah. and having to learn JavaScript, having to learn like databases, having to learn, you know, py well, Python is pretty easy as an engineer to learn, obviously, but Django framework and learning how to do, you know, a whole web app is challenging. Um, but what I decided to do, the first thing I did is I bought a book on, I don't remember what, what it was. I think it was like PHP or something. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, I'm just going to like read this book. And it was like how to build a database driven app with, yeah. uh, yeah. And I started reading that and I'm just like, oh man, like I'm not going to get anywhere if I'm just doing this after work. And like, I was so exhausted at the end of the day and I would like maybe read a few pages and then I'd be like, oh man, I'm so exhausted. So what I did is I just couldn't get this idea off my mind. Like I just thought someone needs to solve this problem. Like this thing needs to exist. And so basically I just decided, you know, I'm going to do this. I loved my job at the time, but I decided I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to build this because if I don't do this now, then who knows, like if I'll ever do it, you know? Um, and, and so what I did is I, it's kind of like, I think it's kind of like what you shared with me earlier when we were mm -hmm. chatting before the, uh, the podcast, 
which is basically that, you know, sometimes you just need to rip off the bandaid. Of course, it's good to like plan, but sometimes you just need to burn the ships behind you, you know, you need to burn the ships behind you and be like, I'm going to either like float, like I'm either going to sink or I'm going to float. Right. And that's kind Mm -hmm. of the way I thought of it. I thought of it like, I'm either going to fail here and learn a lot and then apply for new jobs (laughs) or I'm going to succeed and, you know, have learned a lot of things and have hopefully brought a lot of value to the world. So that was what I did. And, um, and then from there, you know, of course it became one of those things where I had savings, but I also needed to, you know, make sure that I kept those savings and kept an income. And so I started um, writing for different technology publications and any, and, you know, I started learning how to code in parallel and basically I got, you know, reasonably good at coding that I could actually start um, <laughs> doing some freelance coding as well for some wow, web apps. Nice. <laughs> So it's a really long journey and I, I don't know if I would do it the same way just because now I feel like my time is probably more valuable. Well, you know, I think learning is the most valuable thing in the world, but I don't know if I have that kind of time to spend anymore is my point. Um, you know. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, you bring up an excellent um, anecdote and I feel like there's still a lot of people um, scared to take that leap of faith. And it seemed to me that, you know, as you described it, you, the idea just kept sticking with you, right? And just, you couldn't let it go, even though you tried super hard to say, okay, you know, if this doesn't go well, but I guess it's just kept coming back to you every day. And did you think, did you think of that? Were you aware that that was a sign to you to do something more about it? Or were you just so driven uh, about this idea? Because I, I feel like, you know, when I I speak to potential other co-founders, and friends who are sort of in that space but want to get started, I think a lot of the fear holds them back, right? And so I wanted to understand people from people like you, how did you overcome that fear, the fear of not having an income effectively, uh, the fear of failing, right? What are the, the challenges and the mental challenges more specifically about taking your comfortable, cushy, uh, full-time job and then throwing it all away for this, um, idea that may not succeed or will succeed, but you know, at that point, you you don't know. So, how did you go through that mental process? Yeah, so you're totally right that the biggest barrier is fear. The biggest barrier is your psychology. I mean, you know, for people who I think are good at identifying problems mm-hmm. um, and good at identifying things that are needed in the world. Um, fear is the biggest barrier because you start doubting yourself. You start getting nervous about, um, you know, taking that step step, you're hesitant. Um, and you know, that's like, I think it's, I think it's like an endless battle until you realize, and you know, even still I struggle with that. Um, until you realize though, you know, and you start realizing more often that it's thrilling when you go after what you want, right. It's really thrilling. And Mm -hmm. the best part of it is, you know, when you're going after what you want, it's usually because you're working with people and you get to know people and that's like the best part of life, you know, but it's like, it's so easy to be like scared of that. Um, and, and, you know, in the early days, I think it wasn't so much about that because I was really just focused on like, oh, I'm nervous about like launching my web app and like pe- what people will think, you know, mm. and that those were my fears in those days. Um, or quitting my job, of course, <laughs> was a big fear. Right. Um, But yeah, I did keep coming back to it. And what I did is I actually, I knew I wanted to start a company at some point in my life. Like I knew I wanted to start something and give something a try. 
Um, and so I did like write down, like, here are all my ideas. And I just kept coming back to this one. And it was just something that I realized I just couldn't shake because I knew how badly, um, you know, other engineers like me needed it. And it was one of those things where I just figured, you know, someone needs to do this and this doesn't make any sense how engineers are designing today. Um, and someone just needs to do it. And so I think that's what gave me the conviction uh, to do it. And of course it was nerve wracking, but again, it goes mm-hmm. back to sometimes you just need to burn the ships behind you and do it. And of course, I also think there's value in planning, but I also think sometimes there's value in having conviction and belief in your ideas, even when it's totally irrational. Um, if you, you know, if you're able to approach it and, and analyze the situation in such a way that, that you have conviction and that it makes sense, logical sense. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great point. And, you know, for especially like a lot of engineers who are very technically savvy, um, they know their coding, they know their hardware design and all the intricacies of a product. You know, when you ask them to start to do something that's much more high level, something managerial, um, it scares them. And so I wanted to just understand, did you have any managerial experience uh, before you started Snappy Day or were you um, sort of the engineer who would you know, sort of design the PCBs? I mean, did you ever think about educating yourself in terms of running a company? Did you take courses? How did you get to, from just being an engineer to really, you know, becoming a CEO? I think that's the sort of the huge transition that you made. Uh, Was there any learning experiences that you um, undertook through that process? Yeah. um, So, yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know, I think I'm still in transition from engineering mindset, product mindset to a people mindset, really, right? Because that's the transition Mm -hmm. that you make. Uh, So, I mean, in the early days, I mean, depending, it really depends on how many resources you have, right? If you have all the resources in the world when you start your company because you raised a ton ton of money, then, you know, you need to make that transition faster Mm -hmm. because the company can't afford you, afford for you as a founder or for you as a CEO to be an engineer anymore, you need to be a leader, right? So I think it, I think I was able to kind of, well, I needed to actually make that transition more slowly because the company needed me as an engineer. I, you know, especially in the early days, I was the only person Yeah. and I had to basically learn how to do all this stuff, right? The first time there wasn't kind of anyone there in the really, really early days that I could count on. Although we did have some, have some awesome uh, interns that I have to say helped a lot. Um, But, you know, in the early days, it was just me, right? So if I just started learning how to be a leader right away, that probably wouldn't be time well spent (laughs) just because what I've managed. Although the interns may have had like a more, eh, maybe I could have managed the interns better. They could have, uh, you know, (laughs) had a better leader. Um, You know, so, but I also think that like, I I, I think that like, you know, it's a constant um, evolution. And I think over the past few years, I've been really ramping up my kind of learnings in that space. Um, I think I could have, yeah, looking back on it, I think these skills are useful no matter what to have. And I wish I would have probably learned them earlier. Um, Started to learn things like, you know, leadership styles, management styles. Mm -hmm. Um, These days I read a lot about it and actually I'm teaching um, a leadership program with our team right now. So we have like 12 of our uh, team members who are are doing this leadership development program that I'm Mm -hmm. doing at our company. And um, 
And yeah, but I think that like, it really depends on how quickly does your company need those skills from you? Or are you still kind of in the mode of engineering, right? Are you working with a team? That being said, I think these skills are valuable no matter kind of what stage you're at. And if, yeah, I wish I would have learned them earlier, quite honestly. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's really cool. And I think everyone has their own story of how they sort of uh, transition into that role. And, you know, people are initially scared and frightened, but then they eventually get their, their sort of their chops together and they understand the process and they start to enjoy it. I think that's the most important thing. And um, mm-hmm. I think for me as well, you know, uh, working as, you know, starting out as an engineer and then sort of leading, leading a team and, and what have you, you have more responsibility, but at the same time, uh, you're more accountable to a larger amount of people now who are looking up to you and what have you. So I think that's um, super important advice to, to make. I, I wanted to um, sort of just go back to the Y Combinator stuff because um, a lot of my friends I know always ask about Y Combinator. Uh, it's for a, a very prestigious, um, uh, I guess, program uh, that you can enter. But do you want to just provide, because you have been there yourself, why don't you provide a, like a quick overview of what Y Combinator is and how it helped you to sort of start a Snap EDA? Yeah, so Y Combinator, it's kind of like, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of like a, a university, I guess you could say, for, um, for startups. So they, um, they provide you with kind of this training and this advice on, uh, on your company. And so the way it works is it's like these weekly um, weekly dinners and weekly kind of sessions with, uh, with different startups and with different advisors there. And, um, and the focus is on, is on like, you know, essentially they help you with the challenges that you're having in your companies. And I think the biggest benefit for, for, um, for me was that, you know, being an engineer, uh, it was so valuable to, um, to have kind of like almost this like mirror on like my engineering mindset, like my engineering orientation and to kind of shift from being engineering oriented to being more business oriented, more sales oriented. Right. And that, that was really the big, biggest benefit for me was just kind of that reinforcement around, um, you know, I think on kind of like the tips and also the, the, the huge network. Um, there's kind of all these other startup founders that you get to know during the program and everyone's sharing tips on like, you know, how to sell and how to, um, you know, how to do different things. So yeah, it was a, it was an incredible experience. Were you, um, were you actively building, um, Snap EDA during Y Combinator or did you sort of take a break and just focus on the development program? Yeah. So you actively build, um, you actively work on your company. So our Back then, you know, our company had been around, but, you know, it was kind of like a part-time effort. So we were still, product-wise, we were still really early. We had, I think, 2,000 registered users back then. Um, So it was very, very small. And, um, but, you know, we had a working product and we were developing it. Um, So, yeah, you know, we had, we set different metrics during Y Combinator um, based on our, you know, our signups and our downloads and things like that. And so we were still working on it. We were working on basically building that up. Uh, and, and yeah, you, you basically spend the entire time working on your company, um, you know, working on deals and continuing to evolve your product during that time. Do you, um, would you, what sort of advice would you give to people trying to apply for Y Combinator? You know, obviously it's a very limited 
Um, they only av- offer a few, you know, a handful of spots every year. You know, ha- when you submitted your application to Y Combinator, what was the process like, and what sort of tips would you give, you know, potential entrepreneurs uh, trying to apply for that program? Um, you know, based on your experience. Yeah. So, I mean, what I'd say is like they accept companies at every stage of their life cycle, whether it's just an idea in your head to, you know, companies that have like they're that are post series A. So um, I think what they're really looking for is just really interesting, um, you know, interesting ideas and kind of, you know, understanding that you have explored the problem space of your mm-hmm. company. And um, and yeah, I'd say like it's so easy to apply. You kind of just you know, fill out a, an application form and, um, and yeah, you get, you get feedback on your application and yeah, I would say just apply. It's such a great program and yeah, I definitely recommend it. Um, and so I think going on to the sort of next, uh, topic here in terms of, um, you know, going through Y Combinator, going through the funding process, you know, I wanted to understand your position as a female and especially in this day and age, where women in tech, women in engineering is extremely important. Um, how, and especially when you started in 2013, you know, I, I definitely wasn't aware of the disparity between the genders in engineering. I knew that obviously, you know, going through college, like 99% of my class was male, right? But it's always inspiring to see someone like yourself going through the ranks and elevating yourself from an engineer and and to CEO, you know, when you were sort of going through that process, that application and just sort of pitching your ideas to people, you know, were there challenges, um, you know, one being a female in this space? So I wanted to understand um, what was your experience going through all of this? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to, I mean, every entrepreneur struggles, right? We all face challenges and it's hard to, attribute what that is to, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me to say like, oh, you know, um, you know, I, I can't point to any explicit like bias, right? Which I'm really thankful for. Right. Um, but of course, you know, y- you never know, right? And, but I think my mindset has always been, if I just focus on building a great company, no one can stop me, right? Like no yeah. one says no to value. If you offer people value, like no one says no to you, right? Mm-hmm. So if you, if you create a great, a great product, it's not like people are going to not use it because you're a woman. So my approach has always been approach, you know, anything I do, approach anything I do as as it's a meritocracy. And you know what? It might not be a meritocracy, but that's okay because, you know, it just makes you better. And, um, and, you know, and then of course, you know, you can get through it, right? You're challenged with it, but it makes you stronger. Um, Do I believe that, you know, do I believe that, um, things are tougher women. Yeah. Yes. I do agree that it's, it's, you know, probably harder. And of course we've all seen the data. Um, but I also believe that by, um, I believe that by focusing on building a great company that I hopefully can inspire other women to do the same thing, you know, especially in our industry, being the electronics industry, there's not a lot of women that are at the top of our, exactly. You know, and, and, you know, and that's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but I mean, it's, okay that like it's okay for you as a founder to go into that is what i'm trying to say it's okay for you as a founder to 
say that's not this, you know, the status quo is that there's no women there and I'm going to go there and I don't have to be scared. I don't have to be scared. I can do this and I can make it happen. And then I think when that happens enough, I think that other people gain confidence and they can do it too. Right. I do think that there needs to be more systemic change. Um, and mm-hmm. luckily there's some really great organizations in our industry. One is called women in electronics Okay. and they run, um, we're actually sending someone from our team to, to go, they're running a conference. Um, but it's about raising kind of awareness in our industry, which I think is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I just, I don't think it should ever stop anyone. You know, like I think that the greatest thing about technology is that it's a meritocracy. No one, no one knows like if you're a woman or a man when they use your website, right. <laughs> you know, of course, enterprise selling is different. Um, that gets a little bit different because of course you, you know, they know your gender when you do that. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, again, if you, if you show enough value, um, then like, even if someone is biased, which they absolutely should not be, then you can kind of fight through it. That's the way I've looked at it. Um, I don't, I, I definitely think we need more systemic change. I don't want that to be the way that I look at it. I'd like to look at it from the perspective that yes, it is totally equal and that's not a factor. Um, but the reality is, is that, is it a factor? Yes, probably. Um, but mm-hmm. if I just focus on delivering value, then I can kind of break through it. So I don't know if that's the best approach, but that's the approach I take. No, I think that's really good advice, not just to women, but just to anyone in general, right? So who is trying to do something because, you know, the the product will speak for itself or the service will speak for itself. And if you provide the value and say, oh, okay, I need to use this. I don't care who's behind it, but this is such a cool service that I want to use it. I think there's no, at that point, you sort of take away the gender aspect of it um, completely. And I know I, I've been speaking to a lot of uh, people and a few women who are thinking about this. And especially when I was talking, you know, as I mentioned before, before this started, I was t- uh, doing some volunteering teaching uh, in schools and some of the girls would come up to me and say, you know, uh, what's it like working in industry? You know, are there a lot of girls that of your coworkers that are girls and females? And unfortunately, I had to say, no, we don't. We have a few, but we want them to, uh, we want that to change, right? And I think um, it's important to showcase the, um, the the work that you're doing, but also the organizations and the uh, the movements that are happening at the moment. Um, I think there needs to be a better balance. And I think for the most part, it's, it's exciting to see a lot of these um, young people come through the ranks and um, sort of get excited about technology um, because, you know, they're, I think for them, they're oblivious to what it's like to work in industry and the sort of the ups and downs of that. But I think you, to have someone there to maybe you as a mentor or other girls in that industry, um, I think that would be um, super important to have, uh, especially in this time of uh, day and age. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's interesting because we have, um, I think we about 40% of our team are women or so, 40 to 50%. Wow, it's nice. Pretty it's yeah. pretty well balanced. Yeah. And lots of engineers. And I think if there's any difference I notice between um, the people that I manage, it's a question of confidence. Like, you know, when it comes to a promotion or when it comes to, you know, us choosing who the managers are going to right. be, right? And to me, that's just... Like, to me, that's really sad because I look at some of these people and I'm like, they are just so brilliant. And um, in some cases, they haven't pictured themselves that way. In some cases, they don't have the confidence. 
And I think that that is something that I hope can change really fast. And I'm, I think it's already changing. I think it's already changed a lot um, because there are so many incredible female entrepreneurs out there. There's so many, like, there's so many, like, I mean, yes, there should be more, but there's already like so many incredible female entrepreneurs that we can look at in other industries um, to inspire us and to um, help us find strength. And so, yeah, I think that's the one thing that I would love to see change is just um, for women to, you know, women who are starting their careers. And I, I, I already think this is changing a lot, but um, I think there's still work, work to do where um, they believe that they can lead a company or a team, you know? Uh, I would love to see more of that. <laughs> yeah, very cool, very cool. And, um, you know, obviously now, because you, you are in that CEO position and, you know, you definitely have um, sort of overview and oversight of everything, um, you know, what is, I guess, just from a general standpoint of being a CEO um, at a company, you know, what is your day like right now? Sort of walk me through, you know, what it's like to sort of go through that front door in the office and, and sort of walk me through sort of the, the thought processes and the decisions that you have to face every day um, when you're in that sort of position. Yeah. So, I mean, being that our company is still pretty small, we're about 22 people, mm -hmm. um, things kind of change quite often. Uh, and also, you know, um, things have changed a lot this year just because we've been building out more kind of sub teams, um, promoting more managers into different roles and things like that. Um, but one of the things I've, I've been doing or I, I spend a lot of time doing is just kind of planning out um, where we are going to go. Um, so I still do uh, the roadmap. Um, I'm kind of a quasi CEO and CTO, <laughs> you could say right now. Um, so I still plan out the product roadmap and we plan out quarterly OKRs. Uh, so what I spend a lot of time doing is just, you know, planning out, um, the quarter. And then once the quarter starts, I have my own OKRs to achieve. And so, um, I still am definitely working on, um, mentoring our team, helping our teams in terms of the technical side, but then also I'm also managing the sales side as well. So I would say it's, uh, it's pretty diverse just being that we're still really small. Um, but yeah, like I said, 22 people or so, and um, and yeah, so it's everything from, you know, partnership meetings. That's a big focus right now is we are looking to, uh, before the end of the quarter, partner with, um, you know, a couple major partners. Yep. So we're really excited about that. We've been doing, I spent the last week doing demos with, you know, basically seven or so different distributors in the market mm -hmm. that we're kind mm -hmm. of talking to about new partnerships. Um, the other thing is you know, I still definitely monitor and make sure we have a great product that we're communicating that to our users and our, our customers and things like that. Um, one of the things though, I'm really working on is just taking a step back and, and, you know, refocusing on what I really care about most and what matters most, which is relationships and just talking to our customers, talking to our users, talking to partners. It's something that, you know, when you're a small company, it's so easy to jump in there with, with everyone else. Right it's so easy to like, and, and help, help everyone. You know, if, if someone needs help with a technical problem on our team, or if a customer needs help, like it's so easy to just jump in and like, be like, okay, right. like, let me help. But what's really hard is to say like, you know, my team's going to handle that. My team's awesome. They can take care of it. And, you know, and then just focus on what matters most, which is our relationships, you know, with the team and our, our external partners as well. 
So I have a two-pronged question for you. Number one, uh, for those listeners out there, what is an OKR? And uh, just because I'm sure that they've probably heard of OKRs uh, quite a bit, probably in their own companies um, and just, you know, sort of floating around the internet, especially it's a term uh, that's effectively used by uh, up-and-coming companies. It's just even big companies as well use them as well. So what's an OKR and how do you use OKRs um, for Snap EDA? But also the second part of that question is, when you start to think about the roadmap and you think about, you know, what is the future of Snap EDA, where do you get those ideas from? Do you, do you use a sounding board, maybe your executive team, uh, do you have product managers in place? Um, where do you get your ideas from? Sure. Yeah. So I'll start with the OKR question, I guess. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so basically OKR stand for objectives and key results. And I believe it's a system um, that was started at, at uh, Google. I could be mm-hmm. wrong. Um, but basically the idea is that a company sets a few objectives, some very ambitious things that they want to target for the year. And those are the objectives, right? And so the way that I've seen OKRs described is that the objective should be very ambitious things, very vivid um, things that your, your company wants to accomplish. And then the results are kind of the way that you know that you're on track to achieving those objectives. Uh, Now, a company will have OKRs, but then the OKRs will will also cascade down to the teams, to the individuals, um, so that everyone can see exactly how they fit into the company. And OKRs have been totally game-changing for us because they take time to set up, as you can tell, because they're they're all cascading. They need to fit into each other. They need to fit into the company's high-level goals. And of course, they need to be quantified which means you need to do your due diligence and figure out where are we at today? Where can we be? And so there's a lot of work that goes into them, um, but they are huge in terms of your impact because then it focuses your team on the most important things your company needs to do. And that's something that I found really challenging. Um, just being an engineer and my background is I'm always thinking about, oh, I want to do this cool new idea. I want to do this thing, you right. know? And OKRs just kind of help you funnel <laughs> that energy <laughs> into the top, top things your company needs to do, but it does it throughout your whole organization. So that's what, and then of course, the other benefit is that people can see, this is how I fit into the organization. This is how I'm making an impact. And that's also huge because then, you know, our team members can see like exactly how they bring value, right? And they know that they're appreciated. They know that they're valued. They know that they're making an impact. Um, so that's OKRs. And yeah, I, I would definitely recommend any, any startup that's not currently using them. I would highly recommend doing quarterly OKRs because they're really great. Um, and then what was your, sorry, what was your second question? So the second question was about uh, getting the ideas for your roadmap and thinking about the future of Snap EDA and, you know, how do you, what's that process like? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, We have, you know, because we have so many users now, we have over a million engineers who use our site. We get feedback every day. Mm -hmm. So I think there's definitely feedback that comes from users that we incorporate. Um, A lot of our team members will have ideas um, based around our OKRs, right? They'll say, Mm. oh, I see we want to do this. What do you think of this? And so it comes internally as well. Um, And so those are the two, probably the two biggest places is just kind of like, yeah, our team and then our users. And what I basically do is each quarter we'll kind of go through them and we usually have a sense of what the priorities are because, um, you just keep hearing them from users that they want this thing. Um, or it's something strategic that our company 
believes will help us achieve a goal. Um, and then we kind of combine them all together and rank them based on the impact. And it's a pretty iterative process um, because, you know, for anyone who's managed a software product before, there's so many, you know, ideas. There's so many issues that people want updated. Um, there's just so many different things that come up. You know, people want support on, I don't know, like an iPhone app or they want like people have all kinds of ideas. Right. And so we want to make sure right. that we take them into account and we consider them. Uh, so it's a pretty iterative process. And a lot of it involves saying no, because it's actually really easy to come up with ideas. The ideas are they just they just flow. There's just so many yep. ideas because there's so many things that we haven't done yet. Mm -hmm. um, but the hard part is saying, OK, here's here are the resources that we have here are our objectives for the quarter, what features are going to help us achieve those things and ranking those based on impact and effort. So is this thing going to help us achieve the most impact and how much effort is that going to take? Because if it's going to, you know, be very impactful, but it takes us three years, well, we probably don't have time for that this quarter, but if it's going to be very impactful, it takes a day, then yeah, that's probably a good candidate. So it's a very iterative process. And again, a lot of it involves saying like, no, we're not going to do that this quarter. We're going to push that out, which is the hard part, actually. Yeah, I think that sort of that system that you have in place is really effective. And especially when you when you as the employee or, you know, if you're an engineer and you know where you fit in the big scheme of things, it's like, oh, the stuff that I'm doing now is going to contribute to this. And then it's going to help some other person contribute to their problem. And it sort of like builds on top of that, right? So my my question is now sort of in terms of like the the pol I guess the organizational structure do you feel like um are you trying to make it as open as possible so that everyone who has an idea can sort of come up uh to you or anyone else of the leadership team and sort of just uh post their idea to them or is there sort of like a a process that they that they follow because I can imagine you know working at a company uh, like Snap EDA or any other company that is filled with so many ideas, as you mentioned, right? And you can just, oh, in the shower, I have an idea. I wake up, I have another other, another idea. How do you uh, get to, one, filter those ideas? And then, two, how do you prioritize uh, which ones get uh, uh, chosen? I guess you alluded to sort of the duration and how long it's going to take and the impact factor of that. But maybe if you want to just shed some light on on, on that. Yeah. So, I mean, the way I look at it is like the more ideas, the better. Right. So I definitely don't want it to be the type of thing where, you know, like I want everyone to contribute ideas. And, and yeah. again, we're still very small. We're only 22 people. So, you know, the more ideas, the better. And like the other thing, too, is that people that are doing, for example, if you're doing technical support, you are going to have all the insight into what people want. Right. Or if you're doing product management and you're talking to a lot of engineers, you're going to know what engineers want. Yeah, I think, you know, I want to empower everybody to raise up their ideas. Now, of course, there needs to be a process. So we have a couple ways that we do it. We have the ability for people to enter a feature request. So anytime they hear something from a customer, anytime they have their own idea, they can enter a feature and we have like processes around how they should do that, how they write their reproduce steps and stuff like that. But, you know, if someone wants to send me an email because they feel like this is something we need to do now, um, or they just, you know, want to get my thoughts on it. I'm always open to that. I think that that's like, I think that's awesome. That like, that's what keeps me honestly excited about the company is just all the new, new things we can do next. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of, that's, yeah, that's, that, it. that's, that's it. Very basically. cool. Um, 
So we're sort of like closing towards the end of this, but I wanted to probably give you a few questions um, because I think it's important to understand that the role that you have is very important, but it also can be very stressful and busy, right? So I wanted to understand, and I'm going to give you sort of three or sort of two questions uh, to sort of close this conversation off. Uh, the first one is, do you have a specific morning routine that you follow? And um, if so, you know, what is it and how does it help you uh, become, you know, the better, the best self that you can be in that role? Yeah. So this, um, this year, so, okay. Looking back at the company's like life, like life, I guess you could say, um, I used to just basically wake up and get started on, on working. Like mm-hmm. I had no morning routine whatsoever. And I would literally just first thing I would do, check my email on my phone, um, or, you know, just get straight to work. And this year, um, I got a gratitude journal. I forget how I, I forget how I like heard about it. Someone told me about it. And, uh, it's, it's really, it's really cool. You kind of just write down like the things you're grateful for in your life. And I have to say that there, that has been like a transform transformational thing in my life. Wow. Um, just writing those things down. And I think the reason is because as an engineer, you're kind of like trained to look for the mistakes, right? You're trained to look for all the things that could go wrong. You have like this incredible spidey sense for like all the problems. (laughs) Yep. And I think what this has really helped me to do is to just like write down um, the positive things and kind of like retrain my brain to look for the positive things. Because if you look at in the world around you, there's negative things and there's positive things. And it's almost like a choice of what to focus on. Like, obviously you don't want to ignore the bad things, but you know, you can definitely prime your brain, like just the same way, you know, if you go and do a research study um, at university, right? Like one of the things the psychologists do is they prime the research candidates with certain information right to um in certain cases so in the same way you know you can prime your brain brain each day which is what i've been doing to um recognize the positivity in life and recognize the good things in life and i have to say that that has really changed my mindset and my ability to handle stress Um, i just approach each day with a lot of positivity um, and not looking for all the problems. So yeah, I would def- definitely recommend it. <laughs> how did you, uh, how did you come across the gratitude channel, uh, diary or the journal? I don't, I actually, I don't remember. I don't remember, but since then I've actually bought it for my little sister, um, and my mom <laughs> and I've recommended it to some people as well who've been really enjoying it too. Yeah. I, um, I was gifted a journal. It wasn't a gratitude channel, but it was just a, an empty journal. Um, and I was, you know, I, I think I uh, listened to a podcast or something like that, but, you know, I was a bit dubious about it at the beginning. It's like, why would you write something that you're grateful about? It doesn't make sense. I, I've got stuff to do. And yeah. I think at that point in time, when you start to just put stuff down on paper and you just appreciate like the simple things in life, you know, oh, mm-hmm. the sun's up, you know, it's, an, it's a beautiful day, right? I can go, I can bring the fresh air. I think those are the the most effective ways to really appreciate, um, you know, what you have and sort of the bigger picture Uh, because, you know, there are certain days that I, you know, I don't feel the greatest, I think, you know, at work or whatever it may be, but if you sort of just look back on what you did in the day and you sort of note down what you have, 
um, I think it can do wonders with your self-esteem, with your mental state, and as you said, you know, make you less stressful and be even more be more productive um, at the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. I can send you a link after if you're curious to, to check Absolutely, out. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my final question is um, to do with extracurricular activities. I know that a lot of busy people are sort of mind focused on uh, you know getting the job done. But at the same time, I think it's also important from my perspective to do other things. Um, and a lot of high-profile people do this as well. They'll go for certain walks, turn to take breaks, just do completely um, something that's so different to uh, what their what their main job is. Um, is that is there something that you do uh, that you enjoy? That's a passion uh, that sort of takes your mind off things a little bit and sort of puts you into a, a, a different state of mind. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a few things. I mean, I love nature. I love, um, so I love hiking. And one of my favorite activities is I also love reading. So um, I'll either read a physical book or I'll listen to audiobooks and walk in nature. There's some trails near my, uh, my house. Yeah. And, you know, especially now during the pandemic, I've just gone through so many books and, uh, and it's been amazing because I've just, had the opportunity to learn so many different things and you know it's obviously been a really difficult time for everyone but yeah the i think if there's one positive thing it's just that time to reflect and time to learn so yeah reading and also i do a lot of yoga as well mm -hmm. i really like doing yoga so basically anything that kind of helps me to get my mind off of work um and also delivers other benefits <laughs> yep I, I tend to find to be a pretty good use of time awesome awesome and uh finally um did you have any closing thoughts or anything that you wanted to share about Snap EDA or, um, and especially if people want to get in contact with you, um, maybe if you have Twitter or something, do you want to sort of um, just ex tell everyone about that now? Yeah. So um, yeah, if you're an engineer, then I would definitely suggest that you check out Snap EDA to help you design electronics faster. And um and yeah, other than that, you can just find our website at www.snapeda.com. It's completely free for engineers. Um, and yeah, other than that, I just want to say uh, thank you so much, Barry, for taking the time to speak with me and to you know learn more about SnapEDA. I really appreciate being on your show and I'm excited for it. No, thank you. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Natasha. And I really appreciate you being the, the first inaugural guest. <laughs> and um, I'm sure there'll be plenty more of... Um, uh, really cool people coming on and really showcasing um, their stories, the work that they're doing. Uh, but, you know, um, I really thank for what, thank you for taking the time and the, and the effort to, to speak with me today. Thank you. And I'm thank looking forward you. to it. All right. <laughs>